reading through the various commandments in the Torah can be a little confusing, especially when you come to a description of first fruits. Did you know that there were more than one first fruit? So you had one, the first first fruit and you had the second first fruit. Keep that. Uh, first fruit was during the time of Passover. Um, it was bringing the barley, the sheaves of barley, as an expression of gratitude to the Lord. And then as Michael um, and um, as was mentioned earlier, 50 days later, there was a second first fruit uh, in which the people of Israel brought wheat and, um, uh, and pomegranate and uh, olive and figs and etc., etc. All of that was brought to the tabernacle and to the temple. And then there were other occasions when first fruits were brought by the people of Israel. And the simple principle there is that what God gave you, he expected you to take and bring the very best and off the top to him. Not the leftovers and the second and third parts of what you have gotten, but the very top. Why? Because it was an expression of remembering who God is. And this is something we, we see in this portion that we read earlier as part of our responsive reading. We see, uh, if I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 26 and verse 1 of Deuteronomy, where Moses is saying to the people of Israel, when you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you have taken possession of it, and have settled in it, then you are to do X, Y, Z. Now, let's back up for just a minute and remember where, where this is stated. The nation of Israel at this point was camped on the heights of Moab, which is present-day Jordan, overlooking the land of Israel. And let's back up for just a minute and remember what they have been doing for 40 years. They have been schlepping, they have been going around and around and around and around in the desert. They had absolutely no clue about how to engage in significant and, and protracted warfare. And by the way, the conquest of the land would take somewhere between 20 and 30 years. They certainly had no idea what it was like to be a farmer. And the instructions that are given here in Deuteronomy 26 are geared towards someone who knows and understands what the land is about and who knows what it's like to be a farmer. And so when Moses is giving the instruction to the people of Israel, when you have entered the land and you have taken possession of it, that means that as they're listening to him, they can do one or two things. They can either say to him, Mo, you're a Meshuggi. We have not entered the land. We don't know what it's like to take possession of it. And we're still here wandering around like we've been doing for 40 years. They could have said that or else they could say, okay, I don't know what that's like. But if God 
is telling you to tell us that, yes, we're going to enter the land and take possession of it. We're going to believe and accept it somehow. And this is part of the, the major part that we see in this section in Deuteronomy 26. The, the major part is involving faith, which for us, as it was for the people of Israel, is very counterintuitive. Now, this is not ridiculous faith or presumptuous faith, you know, that believes that the moon is made of Swiss cheese. It's prudent faith based on statements that God himself made that often are in opposition to the facts on the ground. We see things that are real as far as our senses tell us, but what God says is, yes, these are facts now, but just you wait until I get done doing what I want to do, what I plan to do, and the facts on the ground are going to be different. And this is part of the picture that is before us. Moses is saying to the people, when you come into the land, when you have taken possession of it, you will come, and when you have come into the land that the Lord has given you, there is an assumption that this will actually take place. Now again, remember that this is something that they were not familiar with. They had no clue what it was like to do anything other than wander, wandering around in the desert. Verse 2, take some of the fruits of all that you produce from the soil of that land that the Lord is giving you and put it in the basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling place for his name. Now, I don't know if you notice one little fact there that the land is, is being referred to as your land. Again, not something that they can see with their own eyes at this point, but by faith they're going to accept. Again, we'll come back to this theme over and over again because first fruits is about us learning to recognize what it is that God has given us that is visible, first fruits, and as well recognizing that there's more coming and depending on God to bring the rest of it. First fruits was uh, the best that the people had, and this would be the first time that they would ever do this. First time after all the years in the desert. And by the way, uh, this festival is given a number of names. It's called Shavuot, as was mentioned earlier. The Feast of Weeks, because you counted seven weeks. It was also called Chag HaKatsir. I want to ask you to repeat it. Uh, simply meaning the festival of the harvest. And by the way, the harvest in Israel ran from Shavuot to Sukkot, which is in the fall. And those are basically like bookends for the length of the harvest. Then it's also called Bikurim, which has to do with the first fruits, the best. Then, of course, from a New Covenant, New Testament perspective, it's called Pentecost. Pentecost comes from a Greek word meaning 50th. Um, and if you're familiar with Acts 1 uh, and Acts 2, you'll understand what was involved here. So 
the specifications for this festival were given in Leviticus 23. And I just want to read to you a couple of statements from Leviticus 23, and you can listen if you would. For from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Now think about the Israelite farmer considering this commandment. You have worked hard. You have plowed the ground. You have sown the seed. You have waited for the rains to come. You have cultivated the soil. And then finally, you see things begin to pop up. And first inclination is to grab them for yourself. And this is part of God's chutzpah, as it were, his, his, um, his gall in that he expects us to give him the first that comes up. And the temptation is to take what comes up, the first fruits, and say, I worked hard, I want it, I need it, I'm getting it. Rather than saying, God, I'm going to take what has come up. It is a gift from you. And I'm going to give you a portion of it. All of it belongs to you. All of it comes from you. But I'm going to give you a portion of it as an expression of gratitude. Verse 20 in Leviticus 23. Now, I'm, I'm skipping over the fact that there was a sacrifice made. Verse 20 in Leviticus 23, the priest is to wave uh, the lambs and also there, there was a waving of the bread. Verse 21, on that same day you are to proclaim a sacred assembly, do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generation to come. So obviously this is being celebrated into the first century so that the followers of Yeshua in the book of Acts, they, uh, along with the rest of Israel, come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So the farmer, the Israelite farmer, had to make a commitment here. Now, we don't understand this because when we give to God, you know, perhaps we go to Safeway, King Supers, or um, some other... Uh, food store and, and we buy things and bring them, it really isn't a huge sacrifice for us. Uh, or perhaps those of you that have been led uh, to give financially an, an offering or tithes, you write out a check. Not, not a great um, amount of energy is expended in that process. I mean, yeah, it, it definitely is a sacrifice, you bet. But the Israelite farmer who lived in the north of Israel, uh, in the tribe of Dan and Naphtali, which is uh, right next to the Lebanese border, would have to come down to Jerusalem, which is two or three days worth of traveling by foot in order to bring the first fruits. And think about it, that the first fruits was the beginning of the harvest, that is the, the busiest season for a farmer. And God is saying to the people of Israel, you stop. You stop what it is you're doing. And you take the first fruits. 
and you hike down to Jerusalem and you give those to me. Why? Because you recognize where all of that came from. You know, the truth is, this really doesn't go down very smoothly in our 21st century American mindset. Because our perspective towards God is a God who is convenient. Uh, we are the ones who rule, the individual rules. I mean, that's what society, society tells us. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. Blah, 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 and more blah. And so the notion that we recognize God's absolute sovereign control over us is something that is really difficult to get our arms around, isn't it? That when push comes to shove, he has the last word about anything and everything that takes place in our life. Our inclination is to say, okay, God, I'm going to give you the religious spiritual component of my life okay right here i'm going to come to service and maybe give a little um but the rest of my life is mine i'll do as i see fit i'll make the glorious and wise decisions that i always make right and i'll give you what what little i think you deserve what a miserable attitude when it comes to how we approach God. Think about it. Where does everything that we have come from? Our life, our health, our finances, our energy, our smarts, when we have smarts. And, and the pro even the progress and the growth that we experience, where does that come from? Yes, we work hard. But what provides the success, where we get the success, is not the fact that we are so incredibly brilliant, but the fact that we have God's grace and favor, that he sprinkles his pixie dust on our endeavor, and that because of that, our endeavors are successful. So is it not right for God to say to us, I want you to stop what you're doing I want you to take the very best from the top and give me that as a recognition of who I am, that I am sovereign, recognition of what I do for you. And furthermore, you will do it not grumpily, as in God, here it is, take it already. But you'll do it joyfully. And so part of the picture for the people of Israel at that first time, that first Shavuot, first, first fruit that they ever celebrated in the land of Israel, was for them to make this declaration. Now, we don't do that. You know, when, when we uh, give, and, and uh, whether it's a tithe or offering, put in a pushka, we don't come back there or come up front and, and have this long declaration but the people of Israel were expected to make that declaration and begin by saying, I declare today to the Lord your God, this is before the priest, that I have come to the land. In other words, what God promised way back here 
has actually been fulfilled. It's actually come about. And I am delighted, I'm ecstatic that we're no longer in the desert. And this is land that the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. In other words, what God said has come about. Now, do you ever do that? Do you ever stop and, and, and there's sort of the uh, recognition uh, light bulb goes on in your mind and you say, oh, wow, what has taken place is really something that God brought about. And so thank you, God, for what you have done. We don't do that often because often our attitude is, God, what have you done for me lately? I'm having a difficult time right this minute. So how come you're not delivering on demand? You know, we, we see God as sort of as the candy machine. We put in the 50 cents or a dollar, I guess, these days. And uh, out will come the blessing, the provision. God's answers immediately on demand. We forget the fact that God has a slightly different perspective on things. So part of the message for the people of Israel was simply to say, God, you told us to come. You told us to bring the first fruits. Here I am. Here I am. I recognize what it is that you have done. And I'm giving you back what, what belongs to you from, from a small portion. Then you shall declare. And this is a long declaration. I want to go through parts of it. Because it's basically a rewinding of the history of Israel. I was going to say rewinding the tapes, but that's uh, so much uh, 19th or 20th century. But you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's basically a reminiscing about the past. And he begins by saying, my father was a wandering Aramean. Now, what does it mean to be a wandering Aramean? First of all, Aram was Syria. So this is not referring to Abraham. It's referring to Jacob, who spent a couple of decades in, in Syria and whose wife, Rebecca, came from, from Syria, from Aram. Wandering obviously means someone who schleps from place to place. You know, you've, you may have heard the expression, a wandering Jew. And uh, if you're familiar with Jewish history, you'll know that the term wandering Jew isn't altogether a real, uh, it doesn't warm the cockles of your heart, you know. If you're familiar with Jewish history, you'll know that our people, Jewish people, have gone through a lot of stuff as we were kicked around from place to place. So being a wanderer uh, doesn't convey real nice, warm, fuzzy feelings, does it? And as you read or reread the story, uh, the biography of Jacob, you'll know that some of the places he had been through were hard places. He went through some hard times. And the word, uh, the, the Hebrew word for wandering, oved, normally means one who is perishing. Now think about the implications. If you are living in your own place, your own country, you're more or less established, you're more or less stable. But if you wander from place to place, 
you run the risk of having people wanting to take bites from you. And so life wasn't always peaches and cream for Jacob. But what we find about Jacob is a couple of basic facts that relate to his relationship with God. First of all, Jacob prospered. I mean, it's amazing. We don't think about it. But when he left home, he was a single guy. When he came back, he was married, had four wives and 13 children and thousands of animals. He was able to give oh, just a couple hundred goats and, and uh, sheep to his brother Esau and camels and cows, etc., etc. So he was blessed. Now, let me just pause here for a minute and mount a soapbox on fellow believers who look at Jacob as the incarnation of crookedness and deceit. You know, you sometimes hear that from fellow believers who look at Jacob as, ah, oh, Jacob the crooked, Jacob the evil, Jacob this, Jacob that. Um, so he became wealthy because he was crooked and conniving. Well, I don't see that in the Word of God, folks. Yes, and this is the amazing thing. The Bible doesn't give us pictures of people that are airbrushed. The pictures of people that we find in the Bible is warts and all. And at least for me, I find that very comforting because if the picture of people that are in the Bible would be perfect, I would come away highly depressed from reading the Bible. You know what I'm saying? But you see folks who have all kinds of warts. Jacob had his. But what defines Jacob's life was not the fact that he had warts. What defines Jacob's life was the fact that he had God's favor on him, especially God's presence, was very much there with Jacob at pivotal times. Just when Jacob needed a special touch from God, God showed up and God talked to him and God presented a picture of what was about to happen and said to Jacob, Jacob, I'm with you. Don't freak. I'm with you. Hang in there. I have a plan. Follow that plan. So I want to read a few verses to you. Would you please follow? If you're able to turn um, in your electronic or regular Bible, um, Genesis 28, verse 13 to 15. This is, of course, the... Uh, dream that Jacob has right after the shenanigan with, with his father, right after he pulled the shenanigan, you think that God would say, ah, I'm done with you, Jacob, forget it. No, that's when God shows up. And at least what it tells me is that when we are rotten, there are times that God shows up and says, I still love you. I still love you. That's what God does here. The Lord appeared and said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land upon which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you 
and through your offspring. I'm with you, and I will watch with you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now that's an awesome statement, isn't it? And part of the picture here is God is saying to Jacob, Jacob, uh, from you, from your kids, will come a, a large nation, and, and this nation will spread here, there, and everywhere. Which is exactly what we see in Deuteronomy 26, several centuries later. So this was when he was young, then middle age, God appears to him again. After another ugly episode involving two of his sons. And then when he is an old man, God appears to him again as his son Joseph is established in, in Egypt and said to him, Jacob, Jacob. And he says to him, he here I am. Which is, by the way, the kind of statement that I hope all of us are prepared to say when God shows up and taps us on the shoulder and says, hello, I'm here. Response can only be Hineni, here I am. I'm the God of your father. This is uh, Genesis 46, verse 3 to 4. I'm the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back. Now again, what is God saying? He's saying all kinds of things, but the most important thing that he's saying to Jacob is, where you go, I will go. Or better yet, I will have gone ahead of you before you even get there. You know, we are so self-consumed, so convinced that we're the ones who have to do it. We have to roll up the, our sleeves. We have to get in front and, and do all the work. And then we invite God to come and bless our endeavors, you know. Say, God, I did all this. Would you please uh, mumble something and make it all good? Totally different picture that we find here in Scripture. That A, God has a plan. B, God is engaged in that plan. He is working with power to bring about his plan. And then he invites us to participate in it. So, no, we don't sit on our tush and, and, and watch uh, worship videos. Yes, we do engage, but we engage because God is working, because God has a plan, because his power is at work. So again, I want to bring you back to Deuteronomy 26. Remember that the Israelite farmer is standing before God and before the priest. He has just brought the first fruits of the pomegranate or the olives or the wheat, whatever, and, and laid it down and talked about Jacob, how that God has been at work with the nation of Israel going all the way back and how that the nation how that God took the people of Israel and brought them into Egypt then verses 5 through 10 let's read the rest of it then you shall declare before the Lord your God 
I'm, I'm sorry, let me jump uh, a few verses ahead here. We lived in, in we lived in Egypt. Uh, excuse me. Jacob went into Egypt with a few people. Lived there, became a great nation, powerful and numerous. Now, when you read the the text in Exodus chapter one, you'll see that the growth of the nation of Israel was explosive. It, the people of Israel went from seventy. Uh, a household of 70 people and exploded into several millions within a relatively short period of time. That was part of the plan that the people of Israel had to be substantial in numbers. And part of the picture also is the fact that the people of Israel needed to go through suffering. This is not a part of our history and our biography that we care to rewind. Do you know what I'm saying? What is typical for us is when we go through difficult times, our inclination is to take those memories, to shove them into a corner, put them in a, in a spot where we never revisit. And there's obviously a balance there because you can go from one ditch to the other. You can go from one ditch where you do nothing all day long but think about the bad times and, and you're kind of marinated in misery. You know, you remember the difficulties you went through and, and you describe it in great and nauseating detail to yourself, anybody else who cares to listen. And uh, sort of the, the um, uh, negative perspective on life. The other perspective is is to... Totally ignore it. And the balance is somewhere in the middle where in the presence of God, we rewind those tapes and say, Lord, the past was difficult, was very difficult. In fact, the language that is used here kind of piles on the language. The Egyptians made us suffer. They mistreated us. This is verse 6, verse 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy. The Egyptians mistreated us, they made us suffer, putting us to hard labor, misery, toil, and oppression. You want to say, okay, I get it. Um, why does God require the Israelite farmer to go through a recitation of what took place? Simply to remember a basic fact. I was not in the Bahamas somewhere, God is saying. I walked with you through those very difficult times. I was watching and hearing what was going on. I was waiting for you to cry out to me and say, would you please come and help? Part of it, of course, is God's schedule, God's calendar, which is a mystery to us, but part of it depends on us simply waking up, smelling the coffee, and saying, God, I need help. You know, when you read the book of Judges, what is incredible is God allows the people of Israel to go through all kinds of suffering, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and then they call out to God and say, God, would you please help us? 
You want to say, what's the matter, you? Why didn't you do that at the beginning? Well, that's the way we are. We go through the tough times. We assume that we can fix it. And eventually it kind of percolates and, and comes through the titanium plates and we get it. And we recognize the fact that we need to call. And by the way, the Hebrew word for crying out is not one of these soft kinds of words, but it is literally crying out, God, help! Tsa'ak. This is a word, by the way, that you see in Scripture a lot. The people of Israel crying out to God. Now, again, what's the purpose of rewinding those tapes and talking about the difficult times? Simply to remember that God was at work with us and that he was doing good things in the midst of the suffering. That's the thing that we don't get. That when we go through suffering, it is not wasted. But God, in his love, in his power, uses the suffering to work good things in us that are often invisible, that we don't get. And that at some point we wake up and say, wow. I went through some awful times back here. But God was doing all kinds of stuff. I'm stronger and, and deeper and more mature in my relationship with God because of having gone through that suffering. And we recognize that God's power is engaged with us. Then the next part of the formula, God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In other words, God's power kicks into action. And by the way, remember that in Scripture, whenever you see reference to God's hand or God's arm, it typically is referring to two things. First of all, God's power unleashed. And second of all, God's power unleashed in a personal way on behalf of those he cares. God stretched forth his arm and he brought us out of Egypt out of the suffering it was part of the plan and this is something that we lose sight of of how God works in our life we don't understand the fact that he has out of the ballpark kind of power to bring to bear on our behalf Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which we've called the riches of his glorious inheritance and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In other words, God's power that is engaged for us is beyond us. And the Israelite farmer at some point through the dialogue, through this formula, as he's standing before God and the priest is saying, wow, God, we went through misery, but you brought us out of that misery decisively. And you brought us into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, let me hasten to point out that the land flowing with milk and honey is not the Garden of Eden. It's not perfect. When the people of Israel came into the good land and the land of Canaan, they still had to engage in significant warfare and battles 
for 20 or 30 years. They still had to deal with the things that a farmer has to deal with on an ongoing basis. You know, you, you sweat, you, you prepare the soil, you, you sow, and then nothing happens sometimes. No rain, there's drought, there are pests and so on. That's still there. That's still part of life, folks. But in the scheme of things, God allows us to go through times of desert where we go round and round and round and round and we struggle and we suffer. And then he brings us out, as scripture describes it, into a larger land, a land where we have more, more room to maneuver. And out of that, the farmers expected then to bring the offering. And he says, I'm bringing this first fruits in this basket. Now let's pause for a minute and remember a basic fact. Does God really need our money? Absolutely not. The, the Israelite farmer, I, I think, I hope, had some kind of clue that God did not really need his basket. And it's very humbling when you recognize that and when you, when you do give and you realize, you know, God could bring all kinds of funds, all kinds of uh, resources from all kinds of places. And I'm here, I'm willing and, and, and to be part of God's plan. And it's very, very humbling. Part of this is for God to recognize who he is, but part of it is for us. It's an important spiritual discipline for us to learn to bring first fruits to God. Proverbs tells us, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. It's a very important, very crucial spiritual discipline for us to habit a spiritual habit to stop and pause and say lord what i have all of it belongs to you i i give you thanks people who are graceless who show no grace to other people are typically folks who do not understand the grace of god if you don't understand how good God has been to you, let me encourage you today to stop and rewind your tapes, go through your biography, and just see, with hopefully with a fresh set of eyes, what is really taking place in your life and how that the hand of God was with you through all kinds of circumstances. Reality, folks is that I'm sure that for all of us, there are instances where we could have been snuffed out and we didn't even know it. Somehow the hand of God was there. I know I've gone through several near misses in the last several years where I, 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 could, have been, um, I could have been toast. I get it. Took a while, but I get it. 
So giving first fruits is first of all about what God wants to do in you. It's not about money. And that is why, folks, we so rarely at Yeshua Tzion talk about money. When we do, we always try to connect it with worship because if giving is not an act of worship, it is worthless. It is worthless. It's part of what we see in Scripture where God sees the offerings, the sacrifices that the people of Israel were bringing out of rot motives that were bringing him the lame, the diseased, the leftovers, and God screams and says to them, keep it, I don't want it, keep it. And as we go through this series, by the way, Rabbi David is going to be preaching for the next two weeks from Nehemiah. Joy and I will be somewhere in the outer galaxy for a couple of weeks. But as we go through these uh, sermons on giving, our encouragement to you is, is simply to line up with God's plan and God's purpose in this area. Not just giving financially, but giving of who you are. That's, that's where giving begins. You give yourself to God and you say, God, thank you. For the first fruits, the visible things that I can see of what you have done. I'm grateful. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm humbled. And also by faith saying, Lord, yes, there are still things that are missing that are not there yet. And based on the first fruits, I'm going to trust you that you're going to bring the rest of the harvest. Just like the people of Israel were expected to do those farmers. When they brought those first fruits, there were a number of months where they had to wait on God to bring in the rest of the harvest. Gratefulness is something that we are expected to do, to have an attitude of gratefulness. We're told that throughout Scripture. In the New Covenant, the New Testament, we're told, in, all, in everything give thanks, for that's God's will. That's what He wants. That's what He demands. And if we have a grateful heart, then we will be generous. Here in verse, verses 10 and 11 in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26, place the basket before the Lord your God, bow down before him, and you and the Levites and aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you. Joy, by the way, doesn't come from everything is great. Joy is not happiness. Joy is based not on circumstances, but joy is based on being grounded and having a strong sense that God is with you and He is in control. Because of that, we are joyful and because we see that He is generous, we're motivated to be generous ourselves. Scripture refers to 
that as bringing the first fruits. First fruits, by the way, refers to lots of things in Scripture beyond what we see with the farmers. It refers to Yeshua being the first fruit of those that rose from the dead. But also, let me just close with Romans 8, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, what we have right now is down payment. God has given us down payment of what is to follow. And we take what he's given us and say, thank you, Lord. So I want to pause for a minute and talk about the faith commitment cards in that vein. Today's first fruits, we encourage, encourage you as you have been led by God to fill those out to put them in the basket. Today, the next Shabbat, Shabbat after that, until we come to the high holy days, and then we will uh, take a more quiet perspective because we want to focus on the high holy days. But this card simply says, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I've had a conversation with God. And because of this conversation, I know that he wants me to commit to giving X amount for the next 12 months. And I'm going to write it down. Again, remember that neither myself nor any of our leadership team will, will see this. This is going directly to the building committee. They will see it once, they will write it down, and that's it. Nobody's going to call you, no one is going to nudge you. Uh, perhaps you have been nudged and harassed and manipulated and coerced in all kinds of places. Uh, let me encourage you to recognize that this is a new day. Not that Yeshua Tzion is perfect, God forbid, but we are endeavoring to do things that honor God and we see this as a pledge between you and God. And we dare not insert ourselves into your relationship with God. That what you have put down, you have put down because you felt led by God. And you're accountable to Him. You're accountable to Him. It, it, it's a vow that He expects you to fulfill unto Him. Whatever needs to take place with the building for Yeshua Tzion will take place. I don't know how. I don't know exactly the timetable. It will take place, folks. I have that assurance. So this is an encouragement for you, the rest of us, our congregational mishpacha, to walk in faith here and to say, God, I'm going to trust you. First of all, that, you, that this is going to be a good experience, that it's going to be a blessing for me, that I'm not going to come away with a sour taste in my mouth, but that I will, I will 
experience your blessing. And I, and, and I will hear from you and I will obey you. Because I want to honor you. So I want to pause. We'll pray and, and then we'll conclude the service. just like to ask a couple of questions to kind of prompt some thoughts for reflection as we pause and, and uh, take some time to worship the Lord here. Have you released control over your finances to God? It's a process. It begins with baby steps, but have you done that? Do you respond in gratitude to the Lord for what he's done in your life? And are, we, are you willing to operate in faith? That regardless, regardless of life circumstances where you've been, you're willing to trust God that he will sustain you, he will bring you through difficult times, and, and that his blessing will be upon your life. Father God, we thank you for who you are, who you are in our life. Thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. Thank you, Lord, even for the gift of faith itself that you give us the ability to trust you. I pray, Lord God, for each and every person here today at whatever stage of this process therein, we pray, Lord God, that you would pour out your spirit upon them, Lord, that they will hear from you and respond to you, Lord God, and obey you, Lord, and experience the blessing that you have for them. We pray as well, Lord God, for, for us as a congregational mishpacha, as a family, Lord God, that you would take us and move us and cause us to advance and grow and that your kingdom would advance in us. We thank you, Lord, for all these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen.